Good morning, church. Wonderful to see you all. I welcome you all here today, and I welcome you all who are watching on Facebook as well. Uh, delightful to have you all uh, with us as we begin Advent season. So uh, welcome to Advent. Uh, great, to, again, to, to start this new season. We'll take a little break from the Book of Romans, and we'll start something new uh, for Advent week. But I wanted to thank uh, Mama Cherry and Cherry for that lovely prelude. Thank you for that. And Cherry, great job out there in the hallway. The music was beautiful this morning. We thank you very much for that. Fantastic work. Uh, the church looks amazing. I want to thank all of you who participated in making it look as good as it does when we pulled all the boxes out of the uh, room last week. Uh, it was formless and void. Uh, and the, the spirit of the ladies and the organizers of this uh, hovered over the depths of the church and made this thing uh, look really nice. So it's beautiful, and we thank you for uh, all your hard work to get this done. Well, today we're going to be beginning a, uh, just a short series, four weeks for Advent, uh, a series that I am going to call uh, For the Glory of God, an Advent series on God's eternal plan. So uh, that's what the series is. It's a four-week series, and uh, uh, we're going to look at the four stages of what I will call God's eternal plan. So when you think about any story that you've ever read, any movie you've ever seen, you could break down that movie, that story, uh, into four parts. All right, the, the, the beginning of the story is the exposition, uh, where, where we're introduced to the main characters uh, and the setting of the story. And then the second part is what we might call the inciting incident. There's some a villain who enters into the scene, or there's some conflict or some tension uh, that changes uh, the, the happy mood of the story, and uh, the, now there's conflict. Uh, and then there is the, the climax, which is where this great tension in the story rises to a head, and, and it needs to be resolved, and, and somehow uh, the, the hero, the protagonist, uh, usually triumphs over the evil, uh, the antagonist of the story. Uh, and that's the climax. And then uh, the story ends in resolution, where all the loose ends are, are tied up and the story ends. Now, uh, most authors who write fiction or many uh, movie makers, they use a technique called storyboarding. And storyboarding is uh, basically how an author or a movie uh, maker plots out uh, how his movie is going to go. He creates like images and then with a little bit of text underneath, just plotting out the way the story is going to move from beginning to end. And it's a draft. Uh, we know that with human authors, the story changes. New ideas come to mind. Uh, perhaps new research reveals facts that were unknown, uh, can make the story better. Uh, so the, the human story changes all the time. The, the novel never turns out as the author originally planned. But the Bible is God's story, and unlike a human author, God, of course, knows the beginning from the end. And the story that originated in God's mind was perfect when originally conceived, and it was unchanging and complete before the story ever even began. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at God's story, a 30,000-foot view of God's story. And so the exposition is creation. We're going to see a God introducing the main characters uh, in the story of creation and the setting. So God introduces himself and uh, his creation. And then there is the inciting incident that we'll look at next week, the fall, uh, where evil enters into the world. Satan in the garden tempts uh, Eve and Adam and Eve eat the apple. And so uh, sin enters the world. 
Uh, but God, of course, wasn't surprised by that. It was part of his original storyboard. He planned the whole thing out, uh, and he knew that it was coming. Uh, the fall was not good. Sin and death entered into the world, but as a result of sin and death entering into the world, uh, God was able to show his mercy. And that's what we'll see when we get to week three, the climax, the cross, the redemption of mankind. Sin and death created the need for redemption, which God promised, which God planned for and accomplished through the birth of Jesus Christ and through his death on the cross, his resurrection and his ascension. And so Jesus met evil head on. He conquered it uh, by dying on the cross and then rising uh, from the dead, defeating all the forces of evil, uh, natural and supernatural, and he redeemed mankind from the penalty of sin. And then in the fourth week, we'll look at the resolution, God's uh, resolution of the story, where God reverses the curse that he placed on the earth uh, and he returns it to his original perfect condition that it existed in before the fall. Now, brothers and sisters, we're uh, three, uh, three steps uh, uh, in God's plan are already passed, right? Uh, we're on this side of the cross, and all we're waiting for is the resolution of the story, where God will fulfill his promises, the redemption of our bodies, the restoration of the world. And we don't know when this is going to happen, but we know that it is going to happen because God has already written the story. It's already a done deal. We don't have to worry about whether these promises of God will be fulfilled because he controls everything that happens. He's written the story and the story cannot change. So our great uh, four themes that we're going to be talking about over the next four weeks. This is what we call the meta-narrative of the Bible, the overarching theme of the whole Bible. And it's the love of grace, uh, the love and grace of Jesus Christ revealed uh, in creation, necessitated by the fall, demonstrated in his redemption uh, of us at the cross and fulfilled in his restoration of the world in a new heaven and a new earth where we will spend eternity. So my prayer over these next four weeks is that we are just going to celebrate and, and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ uh, during this four-week series as we consider these great biblical doctrines uh, during the Advent season. And so uh, week one, uh, we're going to be talking about creation. Uh, if you were in Sunday school this morning, a lot of this is going to sound very similar to what we learned this morning from Bill. Uh, creation in uh, our Sunday school class and creation uh, here in uh, church here, intersect. And so we'll be talking about these great themes of creation. So the first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's an incredible statement. Remember, this is the first verse of the Bible, and this is God in his exposition portion of the Bible, where he's introducing uh, the characters and the setting. The main character is God, God himself, and the setting is his creation. And in one sentence, we see that God completely obliterates all other competing worldviews other than the biblical worldview. Uh, in the beginning, God created, establishes that there is an all-knowing, all-powerful God who existed before everything else, and he is the one who created it. And so atheism is destroyed. At the same time, a polytheism is destroyed. This idea that there are multiple gods, millions of gods, thousands of gods, whatever. Uh, there are not multiple millions of gods. There is just God. God created the heavens and the earth. 
And pantheism is also destroyed. This idea that God is part of his creation. No, God is not part of his creation. He is not the sun. He is not the moon. He's not the trees. He's not the animals. He created these things, but he stands apart from those things. We'd say he is transcendent over those things. Uh, so God created all of these things. And we can left, be left with only one conclusion from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and that is that there is one holy and powerful God who created all that is and governs all that will be. So God revealed himself to us in creation. And so we would call that natural revelation. Natural revelation is uh, what we can know about God by what we can see by looking around us. Uh, for example, we can learn about God's intelligence. We can learn about his sense of order, his sense of logic, uh, his sense of power, uh, his artistry, his complexity, uh, the way he loves variety. Uh, all of these things we see when we look around and we can see how much God must love diversity. Just look around the room, look how diverse we are, let alone what we see in creation between the animals and the trees and the plant life and what we see in the sea. Uh, it's amazing how God loves diversity and we can see all of this just by looking around. But there's another form of revelation and that's called special revelation. And the only way God could uh, let us know more about himself than what he's already revealed in creation is through what we know as special revelation, which is the Bible. Uh, so God had to reveal himself to us because God is unknowing unless he allows us to be known or allows us to know him. And so uh, God spoke to the human authors of the Bible through the Holy Spirit who wrote down what it is that God revealed to them about himself. Now, when we read the Bible, we understand that God has not revealed everything about himself in the first couple verses of the Bible, right? That would be impossible. Just like a human author uh, in the first chapter of his book is going to give general exposition, introducing characters and setting, and then reveals the plot progressively as the book moves along. Uh, that's how God revealed himself progressively over time uh, through human authors so that what was written in the Old Testament becomes clearer in the New Testament as more information is revealed. But we get hints, right? We get hints very early on that God was not alone at creation. As early as Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it says, And the earth was formless, and this is the New American translation, formless and desolate emptiness, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the water. So we get a hint that maybe there's somebody else, something else uh, there at creation with God. And then Genesis 1.26, let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness. And so early on in Genesis, we have this, this hint that uh, God is not alone. Now, of course, the New Testament makes explicit what the Old Testament alludes to, uh, that there's only one God, but he exists in three different persons. So we would say God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We say he's one in essence and three in persons. Now, our finite minds might not be able to fully comprehend how that can be. In fact, we can't comprehend how that can be, but the, the Bible clearly teaches that God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are all God. And the New Testament helps fill in the gaps that are kind of uh, raised, alluded to in the Old Testament. Uh, we get a greater understanding of them in the New Testament. Now, 
I wouldn't say that the New Testament completes our understanding of the Trinity. That would mean uh, that we fully understand it, that we get it, and, and clearly we don't. We don't fully get it, uh, but we do understand a little bit more uh, about Jesus and the Holy Spirit being God. And from the, uh, from the text that we have, we understand that, there, that Jesus played a role in creation. And so uh, we, we talk about God's role in creation, and that's easy to see from Genesis 1-1. But when we get into the New Testament, we understand that Jesus played a role in creation too. And we learn in chapter 1 of John that all things were made by him. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So the first thing we notice there is the parallel between John 1.1 and Genesis 1.1, right? They both begin with, in the beginning. So in the beginning, God created, that's Genesis 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, that's John 1.1. Now, John doesn't explicitly say in John 1.1 who or what the word is, but we do understand that he was with God in the beginning. And John revealed throughout his gospel that, in fact, the word is Jesus Christ himself. The second thing we notice is that uh, this word is a separate being from God, right? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. So we, we get the sense that there are two separate beings there. Uh, and so it's a separate being, not the same as God. And the third thing we notice is that the word was God. So here we are now in John, and we have two separate beings, and both of them are God. And the way John wrote this in the original Greek makes it absolutely crystal clear he could not written it any better to show that there are two separate beings and both of them are God. So when the Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door with the New World Translation of the Bible and they hold it up to you and they say to you, John says, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was a God, you tell them that that is an illegitimate false translation of the original Greek. It's theologically driven, it's false, and it's satanic because it denigrates Jesus to something less than God. So in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, separate being from God, but equal to God. And in case we missed it, in verse 2, John says again that the Word was with God in the beginning. But here in verse 3, John explains Jesus' role in creation. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And so it couldn't be any more clear. Jesus was there in the beginning. He created the universe with God. God drew up the storyboard, as it were, and, and Jesus was the active agent in helping, making creation, creating all that has come into being. So all things were made by him. In Colossians, we learn that all things were made for him. Uh, Colossians 1, 15 and 16, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So now we get the idea of the, the glory of Jesus, that all things were not only created by him, but for him as well. 
Now, Paul wrote the book of Colossians, and he reveals additional details that John uh, did not give. Uh, so we see that not only were they made by him, but they were also made through him, which again is a testament to Jesus's creative powers and abilities and his active role in creation, carrying out God's plan. But now we see something new, that all things were made for him as well which is a very interesting statement, because if all things are made for him, that means all things were made to serve him, to bring glory to him. So everything that exists is, exists to display his glory, to give glory to him, and creation will glorify him. And so all things exist to serve his purposes. Now, a big problem with us as human beings and our understanding of God is that we sometimes reverse the roles. We think that God exists to serve us, don't we? Uh, sometimes we spend our time uh, in prayer saying, God, please serve me in this way. And we tick off this checklist of things that we need God to do for us, right? Uh, I fell victim to this just the other day. I was out for a walk and uh, I started to pray and I said, uh, God, would you please? And then rattled off my checklist. And then I caught myself in the middle of that and I said, I'm sorry, God. Good morning, God. How are you this morning? And, uh, I, you know, prayed properly, uh, addressed him, adored him. And then, you know, of course, I got to my list. But you have to come right. You have to come with the right attitude, uh, with humility, recognizing that, that God is not here to serve us. We are here to serve God. And so we need to understand that as, as we think about our prayer lives, uh, just to be sure we don't reverse the roles, the, the thinking that God is, is our gumball machine or our genie in a bottle, right, who, who we just rub three times and, and get three wishes. That, that's not what it's like uh, with God. Uh, God doesn't exist to serve us. We exist to serve him. And just think of the lengths that God went to uh, through Jesus Christ to, to give us a relationship with him so that we could serve him. Uh, before Jesus, remember the incredibly burdensome uh, task of trying to approach God. The ritual, animal sacrifices, the amount of animals that had to die, uh, the, the rituals that had to be followed precisely to the letter or else God would not hear their prayers. And so what we understand now through Jesus is that we have access to God without having to come before him uh, with sacrifices, with blood, with anything. We just come in the name of Jesus Christ, uh, praise him, honor him, exalt him, and pray uh, to the Lord our God. And so uh, we understand now that because of Christmas, because of the birth of Jesus Christ, because of his life and his death, that we have this access to God and we can come before him with a proper attitude and, and ask how we can serve him. So all things were made by him. All things were made through him. All things were made for him. And in Colossians 1.17, we see that all things are sustained by him as well. This is another new piece of information. In, uh, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We see the author of Hebrews wrote the same thing. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. Now, these are amazing statements when you think about it. Uh, have you ever thought about what would happen to the world if Jesus stopped upholding all things by the word of his power, even for just one second? The world would disintegrate into absolutely nothing. 
I read a book once, I think it was called The Privileged Planet by uh, Guillermo Gonzalez and Jay Richards, and it was all about the exact balances of, of the forces of the universe that exist and how they all had to be precisely where they are or else nothing could possibly exist. They are fine-tuned, all of these forces, for the Earth to support life. So, uh, for example, the Earth's gravitational pull. If it was one tiny bit more or one tiny bit left or less, we could not possibly survive. Uh, the electromagnetic force of the Earth, the, the nuclear forces that hold the atom together have to be exactly as they are, not one slightest variation or life could not exist. Uh, the ratio of the masses of uh, protons and electrons, the speed of light, the chemical compound of water, uh, the distance of the, of the moon from the Earth, the distance of the planets in relation to each other, the distance of the sun from the Earth, uh, all of these things have to be precisely fine-tuned. And if they weren't, life could not exist. If any one of these constants changed, uh, the world would disintegrate. And so the more we learn about uh, the power that Jesus has to uphold all of creation by uh, his power, uh, the more we just marvel. Now, physicists know all about the fact that these forces exist, but they can't explain them. They don't know uh, where they came from, where, where they originated from, why they continue, uh, how they all work together. Uh, but we do. We know how they work together. It's right here in the Bible. Jesus upholds all things, right? And so we don't have to look for deep uh, physics answers. Uh, we have the answers that we need in the Bible. In him, all things hold together. And so we see that Jesus was active in creation. All things were made by him, through him, for him, to serve him. Uh, he upholds all these things to bring himself glory. And so uh, Psalm 19 and Psalm 8 talk about the glory of God revealed in creation. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. Well, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 tell the story of creation in broad strokes. Genesis 1 tells the, 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 the overarching story, a very general story, the overview of how God created in six days. Genesis 2 uh, talks more about the nuts and bolts of how God created man. But the question is, in terms of Jesus's glory and how Jesus gets glory, is why did God bother to create at all? And we understand that, that God did not create because he needed to, right? There was nothing missing in God that gave him a need to create. Uh, God the Father, uh, God the Son, uh, God the Holy Spirit are eternal. They have existed uh, eternally, uh, if we can possibly con contemplate, comprehend that. So when we talk about the Trinity, we're talking about the three members of the Godhead existing in perfect relationship uh, long before time began eternally, and they each serve and are served by each other. They each glorify each other. And so when we think about that and the relationships in the Trinity, uh, we understand that God had no need to create the universe. There was nothing lacking in God, nothing missing in God. There was no hole in God's heart that only we humans could fill. Uh, we understand that, that God is not dependent on us to be complete or that the glory of the, that the members of the Trinity give to each other was somehow deficient and that he needed us. 
No, God didn't create for any of those reasons. God created simply for his glory. Revelation 4:11. Worthy are you, O Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So God displayed in creation his creative abilities, his excellence, his glory, and his power. Uh, God chose to create, not because he needed to, but because he wanted to. And that's the only reason. God's uh, creation was for his own pleasure, for his own glory. And it gives God pleasure to have relationship with his creatures. That's you and me. When it says that uh, God created us, uh, created man in our image, uh, he's talking about the image of, of consciousness, the, the, the idea of being able to be involved in relationship with God. And that's what he wants with us. So it's no surprise when you understand the relationship between the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, existing eternally together in perfect relationship, and now he extends his offer of relationship to us. And that relationship brings him glory, and it also brings us eternal blessings. And when we think about creation, uh, how can you look at the night sky and not just be in awesome wonder at the God who created this? And when you look at it, how can you not want to have relationship uh, with the one who created all of this? And the reason that God wants to have relationship with us is that it brings glory to Jesus Christ. In God's eternal plan, uh, creation, uh, creation of man, relationship with man gives glory to God. Jesus receives glory because God created and then man fell and then Jesus had to be born so that he could die to redeem us. And Philippians 2 tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Revelation 5 says, I looked around and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And all of this happened at the end of times when we are worshiping Jesus. It all happened because of Christmas, because of the incarnation, because Jesus became a man to live and die. So God created because creation brings glory to Jesus Christ now and forever. And so we understand that there, God created and, and, and creation was perfect after it was made. Genesis tells us that God created in six days. And on the sixth day, God created Adam and Eve. And he gave them dominion over everything on the earth. He gave them plants for food. And then God saw all that he had made. And behold, it was very good. So God took man and he put him in the perfect environment uh, to live. He provided everything he needed, food, water, safety, and protection, and everything he needed to prosper. But God gave Adam something else too, didn't he? God gave Adam his own will, uh, the will to, uh, the freedom to choose whether to obey or disobey God. And skeptics often ask, if you listen to a skeptic, he'll often say, why does God allow evil? He's either power, not powerful enough to stop it, or he doesn't love us enough to stop it. But neither of those ideas are true. We know that God is power enough, powerful enough to stop evil, but to stop evil, he would have to strip us of our freedom to love him voluntarily. And God most certainly could have made robots who were programmed to love him. But that's not real love, is it? 
And now is the Christmas season and, and you'll all be gathering with your families and hopefully you'll have the chance to be with your kids. And uh, you, want your, you want to be with your kids. You want your kids to want to travel to you and see you for the holidays, but not because you're going to force them to come and see you, not because you're going to uh, make them come see you under the penalty of, of whatever your creative minds can dream up to penalize them for not coming. You don't want that. You want them to come because they love you and because they want to come and see you for the holidays. If, if we overwhelm them, overpower their uh, will by our will, uh, then their love would not be real. And we want, or God wants that from us too. He doesn't want to overpower us. He wants real love, not pre-programmed love. And a God, uh, our God does not force his love on us. Uh, he offers it freely, but he also allows us to reject it which of course created the need for a savior. And Jesus lamented this problem himself uh, in Matthew chapter 23, talking about this relationship that he wants, and yet man was free to reject it. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. So real love involves real risk. Uh, God put Adam in the garden under perfect conditions. And there was no reason for Adam to disobey God. He had everything he needed to be happy and to prosper. And God said it was very good. And when he said it was very good, he meant it was perfect. Nothing could go wrong except for what God knew would go wrong, right? Because he gave man will. Uh, and so we consider the love of God in creation on Christmas Day. God knew what was going to happen. Uh, and so he had to send his son into the world on Christmas Day to live a sinless life and then die on the cross at the hands of evil men to pay for our sins. And we'll talk about that next week. But for this week, let's just see that God created us with the will to choose because it's in our willing choice to love God that Jesus receives glory. And so the voluntary life of Jesus and the voluntary death of Jesus was the most selfless act in the history of the universe. But it started long before Jesus was born. It was planned out eons in the past, in eternity past, uh, when God willingly chose to create people knowing that they would sin and that Jesus would have to die to redeem them. And so even now, while we wait for Jesus to come again, uh, he graciously, lovingly sustains all that is and gives us what we need with his powerful hand. And the love of God was not only displayed on the cross, but in every single moment up to the cross as he sustains creation, prepares the way for us so that we can be saved. And that's the most selfless love of all. Now, our theme for this week, this first week of Advent, is hope. Our hope is not like the hope of the rest of the world where we're crossing our fingers and uh, hoping that it doesn't rain, something like that. Uh, our hope is certain and secure. Our redemption in eternity is a done deal as we've been talking about in Romans for the past several months. Uh, now we are four weeks for, from Christmas and that's the day when we celebrate Christ coming into the world as a helpless baby. So as we think about hope, this first week. Let's just think about two quick applications related to the hope that we have in him. The first one is this, something that we can actually do. We can keep a personal journal of our hope in God. 
We're only talking about what, 26, 27 days now until Christmas. So every day, let's try something new. Let's write something down, just a brief note, something uh, that gives us hope, the hope that God has given us, and just express it on, uh, in a little notepad uh, and your gratitude for it. He created us because he loves us and he wants us to have hope, even in a world that is just going crazy right now. He wants us to have hope. And if you're willing to do this, share your notes with each other. Share them with me. I would love to see uh, how God has given you hope uh, during this Christmas season. So that's the first one. Keep a personal journey, a journal of your hope in God. And second, remember to keep your own hope alive. We would probably agree that 2020 has not been the greatest year, right? It's probably an understatement. A lot of bad things have happened this year, but I've seen a lot of things to be hopeful for in this year too. Uh, just in our family, we've been doing a, a Bible study uh, via Zoom uh, every Tuesday night, which we would never have thought to do if we weren't quarantined uh, by the virus. Uh, and so uh, one of our family members had this idea, let's do a Zoom Bible study, and we've been doing it for nine months now. And it's a great way uh, that we are able to stay connected. Uh, so, you know, 2020 has been bad, but it's not been all bad. You can find things to have hope in uh, in the future, even though this virus has really been a difficult thing. Uh, the incarnation of Jesus Christ gives us hope, biblical hope, certain hope that all of his promises will be fulfilled. Now, I may be going out on the limb here saying that 2021 can't possibly be worse than 2020, can it? I'm afraid to even say it. I'm afraid to say it. Who knows? Who knows what 2021 will bring? Uh, but even if it does turn out to be worse, we have this certain hope. We know that Jesus is coming again because he was born and he lived a perfect life and he died on the cross and he rose from the dead. And we know that we too will rise with him if we have received him as our savior. And we can trust these promises because a God who is powerful enough to create all that is and is powerful enough to sustain all that is and is powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead is a God in whom we can place our hope. So let's keep our hope fresh every day and let's do our best to reflect it to a world that is in desperate need of the hope that we have as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Amen. Lord God, I thank you for this Advent season as we prepare our hearts, Lord, for the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, an astounding event, uh, the most astounding event in history, that, that God would become a man. Lord, help us as we uh, try to ponder the depth of that, uh, what it means for God to become a man and to live this life that we couldn't live and, and pay the penalty for our sins, Lord. Help us to not get caught up in the materialism of Christmas, Lord. Let us remember the reason for the season. Lord, we thank you for your son, and we praise him in all things. It's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.